Second Samuel chapter seven. And if you can, I'd like to invite you to stand. Starting verse one. Now when the king, referring to David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over, the people, over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. You may be seated. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I pray right now that our eyes would be open. Our ears would be open so we may listen to your sweet, powerful, gracious, life-changing voice and there are our eyes will behold the beauty of Jesus Christ our Savior. Help us. I need your help. I definitely need your help. 
As Sam prayed here, we all here are nothing without you. So help us. Help the congregation to be faithful as they listen. Be glorified today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the love that you have placed in our hearts to love one another. And I pray that you preserve us, guard us, deliver us from the evil one, and deliver us from the evil within us. And right now, Lord, I pray that all the satanic birds that will try to snatch the seed, that you remove them from this place. Plant your seed deep in us. Bear much fruit for the glory of your holy name. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. 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 Today we come to the Davidic covenant. And one of the, the difficulties with talking about King David and the Davidic covenant that's related to the monarchy and David as a king, I believe, especially for us Americans, is that we, we hate monarchy. The last king we had didn't go very well. We love freedom, independence. And I would say that even you think about United Kingdom and they have a sort of monarchy, still that monarchy is very limited. It has nothing to do with the monarchy in ancient Near East. So when we think about king, kingdom, subjection to a king, it's very hard for us to swallow and digest. No, thank you. I prefer my freedom than a king over me. And we hate this idea so much that some people have created a heresy, and I'm not speaking lightly, I'm speaking thoughtfully, a heresy that you can have Jesus as your Savior and not as your King. That's how much we hate kingship. So people teach this heresy, and it is a heresy because it leads people to hell, saying that you can have Jesus as your Savior, and yet never submit to His kingship and His Lordship. So do you see the difficulty with kingship and monarchy? The other difficulty is that we know very little about David. We actually think that we know a lot about King David, but we know very little. So for most people in churches, if you ask, what, what do you know about King David? And they will say at least two things. The Psalms and Goliath. That's it. And yet, this king and this government plays a major role in the drama of redemption. So my prayer is that as we walk through the Davidic Covenant, that the Lord will remove these obstacles, and that we will see the glory of King Jesus, and the majesty of the Kingdom of God. Amen? So, here's the outline, and I will move fast. I need to move fast. I know some of you have been very gracious to me and say, hey, just keep preaching. Stop worrying about time. No, I have a timer right here, and... That's, if, if we were working through covenant, the series was the covenant, I would spend time. But the series is what? An overview of the Bible. So what I'm trying to do is just to get some things from this covenant and show you how these things are 
holding the Bible together, the whole story of the Bible together. Okay, so that's why I'm moving fast and just throwing things here and there. Thank you for your grace towards me. Uh, so we're going to look at the introduction to the Davidic Covenant. Then we're going to look at the drum of redemption leading to the Davidic Covenant. We're going to behold kingship in God's drum of redemption. And then we go to 2 Samuel 7. And then finally, the need for a greater David. Or the need for the son of David to come. So we have been walking through... The storyline of the Bible, we saw how the Bible is a covenantal document, and it's not only a covenantal document, but it also has a covenantal storyline, and we saw the covenant with Adam and Noah, who else after Noah? Abraham, Moses, so if you think about so far, we have moved from the heights of the the mountain of Eden, the garden of Eden, in that beautiful mountain of God, we have gone down, we moved to where? East. And then we started moving back west with Abraham, then went south to Egypt, and then we started moving back to the place where they're supposed to be, and we arrived on Mount Sinai. And today we're going to move from Mount Sinai to Mount what? Zion. So here is the Davidic Covenant, an introduction to the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant receives its name, Davidic, why? Just like the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, the Noahic, because of the mediator of the covenant, David, beloved. He is the instrument, the means of this covenant that God is establishing. And this covenant is so important. You will not understand the rest of the Bible without understanding this covenant. Think about the rest of the historical books, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. It makes no sense apart from understanding the Davidic covenant. Even the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, you have, inside the book of Psalms, you have five books. Remember, the book of Psalms is structured around five books. And these five books are centered on David in the Davidic covenant. And then you come to the New Testament. The New Testament opens with Jesus, the son of whom? David, the son of Abraham. So you will not understand Jesus apart from the Davidic covenant too. So you see how important it is. Now one scholar says, David is the offspring of Adam, Abraham, and Judah. And we could apply no way between Adam and Abraham. Because tracing the genealogy. And now serves as the monarch of God's people who live under the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenant continues the trajectory of the Adamic, Mosaic, Abrahamic covenant. God's plans for David and Israel are clear intertwined. So you cannot separate this covenant, you cannot separate David from the storyline of the Bible. And we saw that before when you walk through the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic and the Davidic Covenant have a lot of similarities. And therefore the Mosaic also that's continuing this part. Both Abraham and David, they promise a great name. The promise of a king. Both the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The promise of land. The borders of the land. Nations will be blessed. The promise of a royal priesthood. So we see these things between. The parallel between Abraham and David and following, of course, the storyline of Genesis 1. So, 
The Davidic covenant, why is it important? The importance of the Davidic covenant is that it identifies more precisely the seeds who will mediate international blessings. So you think about Genesis 3, you have the promise of a seed, and it's pretty broad. We know that the Lord preserves Noah and creation in order for the seed to come, and then you come to Abraham, and it's still broad. Then you have the nation of Israel, that's still broad. So it's narrowing and narrowing down until you come to David. So the Davidic covenant identifies more precisely the offspring who will mediate international blessing. He will be a royal descendant of Adam and Abraham through David. This royal seed, we know that's Jesus, already mentioned explicitly in the Pentateuch, culminates uh, in a single conquering seed who fulfills the promise of Genesis 22.18 and the hope expressed in Psalm 72. How he would be the promise and hoped for king who would rule over all, all the nations. So putting together all the, the promises and prophecies about this Davidic king. Uh, moving to the drum of redemption leading to the Davidic covenant, as we are thinking about the story, the, the plot of redemption as we come to the Davidic covenant. Last Lord's Day, we stop at Mount Sinai. Remember, we were with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. God is making a covenant. We move to the book of Leviticus, there is still a Mount Sinai. The book of Numbers, until chapter 10, there is still a Mount Sinai. After that, they start moving towards the Promised Land. So the book of Deuteronomy ends with the whole nation of Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, standing, ready to uh, enter the Promised Land. That leads us to the book of Joshua. Joshua opens with the death of Moses, the great leader of Israel, and, Moses, and Joshua takes the role of a new Moses, and he leads the people now, they cross the Jordan River, and they lead, they, they go, Joshua leads the nation into the promised land, and then they start conquering, so the first part of Joshua is conquering the land, the second part of the book of Joshua is dividing the land, that leads us to the book of Judges. The book of Judges, we see the darkness, spiritual darkness, how fast the nation of Israel breaks covenant, and how long-suffering the Lord is to keep His covenant. So it's a dark time during the book of Judges. Uh, Joshua dies, and there is a, a, a very important verse in Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. I think I... Yes, I have there. You can look in your Bible. Please open your Bible. Let's just follow with me. So, book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, says the following, after the generation of Joshua died. Look at that. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And we saw before with Israel, before the Exodus, how horrible it is when you have a generation that does not know the Lord. And that's what's happening with Israel in the book of Judges. They don't love, they don't treasure the Lord. So the book of Judges paints Israel in a spiral that's moving downward, morally, theologically. And the book of Judges ends with this sentence. In those days, that's Judges 21-25. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's crucial to understand the next book. Because this statement here brings two important thoughts to our minds. First, will there be a king who can domesticate this wild donkey here? Israel is just chaotic. Is there a king that can come and control these people? That's the first thought in the book of Samuel. We will tell us what? Yes, David. David and Solomon. The, the, the next thought that this sentence raises, even in the most chaotic, the darkest of all times, the Lord still preserved Israel. Therefore, every king that Israel has is only a king under his kingship. Israel will always owe their survival to the Lord. The Lord preserved them even in the darkest times. Well, that leads us to the book of Samuel. Samuel opens, and we are still during the days of the judges. So the book of Samuel, the next book. And remember, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel is just one book. Just one book. And the book of Samuel is still in the days of Judges, and it opens showing the darkness of that time with the priesthood. Remember the first priest that appears in Samuel? Eli or Eli and his sons. Terrible priesthood. Sinful. Not only that, but the book opens also with a woman. What is her name? Hannah. And what is Hannah's condition? Buried. Her womb, that dead womb, is a picture of Israel. Dead. There is no life in Hannah, there is no life in Israel, but the Lord loves, loves death because He shows Himself to be a God of life. And He brings life out of death. And He brings life into Hannah's womb. And who is born out of Hannah? Samuel. Will you anoint the king? And Samuel is the last judge, last pro the first major prophet here with, after Moses and, and Joshua. And it's fascinating because Hannah, she, she prays to the Lord and her prayers, her prayer, her song of praise is filled with royal imagery. And then in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 2, in her hymn, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Look at that, in her, that's 1 Samuel chapter 2, no kings, and she says, The Lord will judge the end of the earth, he will give strength to his what? His king. But there is no king in Israel. And exalt the horn of his what? Messiah, Christ, his anointed one. So this hymn prepares us for what? A king to come in Israel. And if you could outline the book of Samuel, we see first Israel's need for a king. That's 1 Samuel 1 through 7. Then we have the first king, the reign of Saul, 1 Samuel 8 through 15. And then in between there you have the rise of David. And then we have the reign of David. And then you have an epilogue at the end of the book. So, as we are talking about kingship, it's important to think if kingship was something that the 
the Lord had planned. If that's something that the Lord wanted for Israel, because I... Some people who say, no, the Lord always wants to be a theocracy and He alone is supposed to be king. Or, yes, there are supposed to have kings. So, I believe that throughout the scriptures, there has always been, since creation, the idea that God is king and He will rule humanity through a mediator who will be a king. So, we see the problem with the... Because you read that... 1 Samuel 8.5 Remember the people said, the people come to Samuel and say, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the problem is, and the Lord would tell Samuel, because Samuel is hurt, and the Lord says, No, 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 no. It's not you that they're rejecting. They're rejecting me. But the problem is not the monarchy, it's not the king. But the problem is when and how they're asking. That's the two major problems. King, kingship in itself was never the problem. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe, Genesis 1 through 2, we see God as the sovereign king. So if you think about the Bible, you have Genesis and Revelation. And the beginning and the end of the Bible, we see God as king. The, the, the book of Revelation ends with the throne. We are beholding the throne of God. The kingship of God. So God has always been the king of the universe. God made Adam and Eve as his vice regents, a royal priesthood to reign. The idea of being made in the image of God is to be given a regal status. So, as a king, Adam is called to subdue, to reign, to conquer, especially the serpent. One scholar says the idea of God reigning through a mediatorial man over his creation began with Adam. And that's before the fall, brothers and sisters before the fall. So kingship is not because of sin of man. Amen? Sometimes you think that kingship is just because of sin. No. Before the fall, God placed Adam as a vice regent to expand his kingdom. As we move, we see that the promise in Genesis 3.15 is of a king. A king who will come. A king better than Adam. He will crush the serpent's head and do what Adam was supposed to do. Under the Abrahamic covenant, we behold the promise of kings. Abraham acts like a king and priest. Jacob, towards the end of Genesis, speaks of a king who will come from the line of whom? Judah. And he will rule the nations. Similarly, Balaam, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he speaks about the scepter within Israel. And a king will rise for Israel. So, then you see the creation of the nation of Israel, and the Lord calls the nation a kingdom of priests, implying that there will be a sort of monarchy to structure this kingdom of priests. And even in Deuteronomy 17, God gives laws for the kings. So, you don't even have kings, and the Lord is already giving laws for how the king is supposed to live. So you see that has always been in God's agenda to rule his people through kingship and with a mediator. So the history of Israel prior to David demonstrates that the, nation, the nation's need for a king to incarnate God's reign. It was God's plan to have a man as the mediator of his kingship. 
One scholar says, kingship in Israel was to be a means of accomplishing Exodus 19, 3-6. The king would be a devoted servant and son of God and would also function as a priest, instructing the nations in the righteousness of God and inviting the nations to come under the rule of Yahweh. Well, that's the kingship in the drama of redemption. Until we come to 1 Samuel. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, we find Saul. He's the first king. He's inaugurated. He's anointed as the first king of Israel. And it doesn't take long. So if you go from 1 Samuel 9 to 1 Samuel 15, and the Lord is already declaring that he's forsaking Saul. That's not the king after my own heart. And then starting 1 Samuel 16, we have the rise of the future king. And that's when David is presented, 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 17, we have the famous story of David fighting Goliath. But what you need to understand is that before that, the Lord told Nathan that, or Samuel that he was looking at the king's heart. He wanted a king whose heart was following after God's own heart. And the story of Goliath shows, his battle shows what a king after God's own heart is like. Instead of being like Saul, fearful, he's a man who trusts the Lord. And he trusts the Lord's promise of conquering the serpent. And that's exactly how David behaves. He beheads the gigantic serpent, Goliath. So, that's what we see taking place until we come, and we are moving into the history through Samuel, until we come, and now you can turn there, 2 Samuel, in your Bibles, open there, 2 Samuel, starting chapter 5. Chapters 5 and 6, just previous to the covenant with David, David is portrayed as a king and priest, a royal priesthood. He's anointed as king over all Israel. He defeats the nation's enemies. And then as a priest, he offers sacrifice to the Lord. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So our royal priesthood is a king priest. Embodying what the nation is supposed to be, a kingdom of priests. So all this, now we arrive at 2 Samuel 7. Okay? See the journey. Are you tired? Exhausted. <laughs> All this drama leads us now to 2 Samuel 7. That's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. The rest of the drama of redemption will be dependent upon the understanding of this covenant. Think about Jesus. Jesus, we always think that the last name of Jesus is Christ, right? Well, that's his last name. No, that's his title, Christ. And Christ, the, the Greek from the Hebrew, Messiah, that means anointed, and that refers to kingship primarily. A king was anointed, and that's coming from the Davidic covenant, the anointed one. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 starts with the Lord giving rest to David from his surrounding enemies. David is in his palace, and just like any other king in the ancient Near East, after victories, the king would say, I need to build a temple for my God. Or if the God that he worships, doesn't need a temple, he will just remodel and make it more beautiful. 
That's what kings in ancient times would do. They would come from victories in battle and honor their gods by building a temple. And Nathan says what? Yes, go ahead. That's what everybody else does. Sure, David, go and build. And the Lord comes to Nathan and says what? Hold your horses, Nathan. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not like that with me. I'm in charge. And right here we start seeing this beautiful unity of the office of king and prophet. And they work together as in a system of checks and balances. The prophet is supposed to come alongside the king and help him. And the Lord tells, no, no, no. That's not how it's going to work. David is not the one who's going to build the temple. Uh, and in Chronicles we hear one of the reasons is because David is a man of what? Blood. A man of war. And the temple symbolizes peace. So it's not for David. It's for Solomon whose name means peace. We'll build that temple. So going back to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Starting in verse 8, the Lord enters into a covenant with David. Even though the word berit is not there, the Hebrew word for covenant is not there, it is a covenant, and you know that because there are other passages in the Bible that say that tell us that that was a covenant. And a lot of times, as we saw with creation, you don't need to have the word there. If it smells like, looks like, it is. So, uh, so for example, Psalm 89 is very clear about the covenant with David and so many other passages. But look at, the, the, look at verse 8 of chapter 7. And that's the prologue. The prologue of the covenant. And says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. Look at how that resembles and echoes the, the prologue of the covenant with Abraham. Covenant with Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans and resembles the prologue of the covenant with Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And then now the Lord tells David, I'm the one who brought you out of the field following after nasty sheep. I'm the one in charge. It's all because of my grace. So all the prologues of all the covenants show God's grace. It's always His initiation. That's all we see right here. And there are two major parts of this covenant, and that's vital to understand. If you want to understand the Davidic covenant, first of all, you need to understand there are two parts of this covenant. The first part is for David's own life, and then the second part is going to be for after David is dead. So the first part, you have promises during David's own life. God will give David a great name. The name implies a regal status, and yes, David is known all over the world today, even today. You go to certain places of the world and in some Christian community, and they know the name of King David, but they don't know the name of so many other kings. So his name became great. The Lord promises that he will plant Israel in a secure place, and that takes place under David, brings them to Jerusalem, and God will give David rest from his enemies. All these things are fulfilled in David's lifetime. And that's what the book of Samuel, the following chapter, showed. And between these three promises, you have a play on the word. So look at verse 11. 
And my time is running really fast. <laughs> so look at verse 11. It says, that's a beautiful play with the word because David had said that he was going to build a bait, a bait, a, a, a temple or a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, actually, I will build a, a bait. And the, that word could mean house or household, a dynasty or a temple. And the Lord is playing with the words in verse 11. And so the, from the time I, I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a, a bite, a house. But the house here would be better, a household, a dynasty. So there is a place to words in verse 11. And then we'll talk more about that later. But in verse 12, here's important. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. What does it mean? Okay. David is dead. And then the Lord gives new promises to him. After his death. Then you have the promise of raising up a seed. Establishing the throne of this seed forever. He will be a father to the seed. And not, he will not remove his chesed. And then in verse 16 he repeats the same thing. Seed or dynasty, kingdom and throne. So here's the structure. Especially of these promises after David's death. It's beautiful how it's structured. Because you have the promise of a seed or dynasty, kingdom and throne. And then you have the language of sonship. And then moves to the promise of dynasty, kingdom, and throne once again. That's how it's structured in the Hebrew. This, this promise is after David's death. And right in the center you see the beautiful declaration. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me what? A son. And from now on the Davidic king is known as the son of God. He receives this title of son of God. The terminology of son in ancient times is not related primarily to DNA. When you think about son, you think about what? Blood. But son was, first of all, someone who would follow after the character or the attributes or the work. That's why a man can be called the son of encouragement. Why? Because he's following. He's just the pattern of encouragement. He follows after. He looks like encouragement. So if, and that's how it was, and it is still in many parts of the world, if your father is a farmer, you will be what? A farmer. If your father is an accountant, you will be what? An accountant. That's how it is in ancient times, and it's still in many parts of the world. Different from our culture, where we want the kids to go to college and find their own, their own lifestyle, their own career. That's not how it was. And we see that with Adam, who was God's son, according to Luke chapter 3. He was God's son, why? Because he was to imitate God. To imitate God in his reigning. And reign with holiness, and grace, and mercy, and power. He was to bear the image of the supreme king. So, gentry and well, they say, Israel inherited this Adamic role. Remember, because Israel is called God's son. The Lord tells Pharaoh, let my firstborn go. Meaning, Israel, the nation, is God's son. Israel inherits the task of Adam. 
Yahweh refers to the nation as His Son in Exodus 4. The divine purpose in the covenant established between God and Israel at Sinai is unfolded in Exodus 19. As a kingdom of priests, they will function to make the ways of God known to the nations and also to bring the nations into a right relationship to God. This is the meaning of Israel's sonship. Deuteronomy 17 intimates that the king will be the leader in this rule. So the king of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 17, he is to embody the Torah, he is to write the law and engrave the law in his heart, so he is to be now the representative of the people. So you think about the nation of Israel, it's called the Son of God. Now this king takes this title because he represents the whole nation. That's why the king now is called the Son of God. Because he takes the representative role of representing this nation that was called God's Son. David, as king of Israel, has a representative role. That is, David represents God's people. Like Adam and Israel, David is called the Son of God. That's very important because that's developed beautifully through all the rest of the scriptures. And Jesus comes as Son of God and there is an aspect of this one taking this Davidic role. Or the role of Adam, the role of Israel as the true, the true Son of God. Uh, Psalm 2 is a very good example. If you're taking notes, Psalm chapter 2, you see this language of Son is the Davidic King. Says in Psalm 2, as for me, the word says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then it says, the, the psalmist says, the David king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the king said, you are my son. So that's why he started taking this. David as king takes the role of God's son. He's the representative. He's to be an image bearer of who God is. How to reign. Is to show the nations how a king is truly to reign with holiness and righteousness. That's the idea behind. So Adam was the son of God, and the first king was placed on God's holy hill, and then this task now is moved to David. It's impossible to separate if you think about Adam, Israel, and David, this kingship, this sonship. This aspect of being called Son of God is inseparable from the nations, helping the nations to see the holiness and the majesty of God. Amen? And that's important to think about the repre uh, representation or representative role of the Son of God, and especially the King. You will not understand the rest, and even our... We talk so much about... Uh, being delivered from the wrath of God and, and, and Jesus taking our place, you can only understand that by understanding representation. He's our representative. He's the king. He represents his people. And that makes us understand also why Jesus suffers. And the suffering of Jesus is connected to the promise that God made to David, that his seed after his death, you know, the Lord says, and when he sins, I will what? When he commits iniquity, what will I do? I will punish him. I will punish him. You think, but Jesus never punished him. Never sinned, never committed iniquity. Ah, but there is a representative role. Yes, never committed iniquity, but his people did. 
and he suffers on behalf of his people. That's exactly what we see in Isaiah. I'm to go forward here. So he compared 2 Samuel 7, 4 says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man. And then in Isaiah 53, we see the servant who is the Davidic son, the son of God. It says, Yet we esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? For our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquity? Our iniquities. So you see the representative role. Yes, the son of David, the son of God, will suffer also because of his is this. Mediator, the representative of his people. And that happens. You can have a godly king, but if the whole nation is in chaos, in rebellion, that king will suffer also. So, going back to 2 Samuel 7, and we see how David understood that, that his role as God's son was for all the nations. Sometimes you think that David was just for Israel. No. As a son of God, he has this representative role of showing God to all the nations, just like Adam and just like the nation of Israel. And David understood that because when you come to verses 18 and 19, that's David's reply to God's covenant with him. We read, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And then he says, And this is instruction for mankind. I know you don't know Hebrew, but just some of the words you can see and we will help you. Zot, Torah, Ha'adam. You have Torah and you have Adam. And David understands how this covenant is to be Instruction for all mankind will be a covenantal instruction, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. He understood that. And uh, I don't have time to explore that, but it's just, that's exactly what happens as you keep looking at the development of this Davidic king. He will bring all the nations, and in Isaiah chapter 2, the nations are coming to Zion and learning the Torah of the Lord. That's exactly under this Davidic king. One scholar says, The Davidic king reigned to shepherd humanity to the house of God upon the mountain of God. So, the language of sonship and, and is very important because it connects, connects Adam and David together. And that's exactly what we see being painted here as you, work, as you walk through 2 Samuel or Chronicles, especially these two books, you see how David... And after him, Solomon, they are painted as Adam, as an Adamic figure. Why? Because son of God, representative rule, king and priest. So, David, like Adam, is a king and priest. David conquers Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes the dwelling of God. So, just like in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, where God was dwelling with men, now in Jerusalem, under the kingship of David, God is dwelling with men. Much of the imagery and decor inside the temple in, Jeru in Jerusalem remind them of a garden. Think about all the imagery inside the, the temple, the imagery of trees. And it's a garden. 
taking us back to the Garden of Eden. So that's why the, the Israelites had to go at least once a year to Jerusalem and behold that Eden. Even, not perfectly, but see the restoration that's coming through this Davidic king. Solomon also, Solomon is painted as an Adamic figure. Uh, Solomon, Solomon is described in 1 Kings 5 as one who has dominion over the same language. Uh, he has knowledge about trees, cattle, flying creatures, creeping things, fish. This language is all from Genesis. Uh, Solomon is described as one with ability to discern good and evil. Solomon is painted as fulfilling the creation mandate. Solomon is described as a new Adam who has reestablished creation worship in an Eden-like sanctuary. And especially David. You think about David and his story with Goliath as he comes to fight Goliath. Goliath is actually described as a gigantic snake, as a, as a Leviathan. It's described his, the material that he has in his armor as scales. That same word is used for snakes or serpents. And David comes and what does he do to Goliath? Where does he hit Goliath? In the head. Goliath falls and he dusts. And then he beheads Goliath. And right there, everybody says, that's the seed. That's the seed of Genesis 3.15. From the line of Judah. Smashing the serpent's head. You see, it's all bringing us a picture of Adamic Roa. It's here. That's the expectation. Also, important things, uh, I need to skip this, the house building, it's beautiful, the, the language of, the, the, David wants to build a house for the Lord, the Lord says, no, I will build you a dynasty, the same Hebrew word, the Lord just masters, it's a play on words there, and that's exactly what Jesus does, Jesus builds a temple, which is a household, not with stones, but with living stones. There is a play in the words here that we see especially fulfilled in Jesus. Also important as we think about the Davidic covenant is the transfer from Sinai, Shiloh, or Shiloh, and now we arrive on Jerusalem, and on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Just as previous mountains in sacred history have been associated with the covenant mediators, we have Adam and the Garden of Eden, the mountain of the Lord, we have Noah and the mountain Ararat, we have Abraham, Mount Moriah, we have Moses with Mount Sinai, so Zion now is associated with David. And then you have the transfer to Jerusalem. I have a map just to show you. And the region is very close to Mount Moriah. So you have Jerusalem, Mount Zion there, Moriah, and it all takes us back to Abraham. Abraham, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, that's the same area, and you start seeing the connection with Gentiles. Melchizedek is a Gentile, Abraham is a Gentile. And no wonder the prophets developed this idea and said that Zion, or Jerusalem, will become the center of all the Gentiles coming to do what? Worship the Lord and learn about Yahweh. Ultimately, and most important is, Zion is precious, Jerusalem is precious. Why? Because of the presence of God is there. That's the only reason why 
Zion in Jerusalem is beautiful and glorious. So you read in the Psalms about Mount Zion in Jerusalem, it's because the Lord is there. Let me ask you, is God dwelling just like He dwell under the Old Covenant in a specific place in a temple? Not anymore. Right? And that's why you need to ask yourself. So, because you see so many Christians talk about Jerusalem, the Holy Land. Is He holy? Is the Lord dwelling there like He dwelled before? Because as soon as He removes His presence, that land becomes just like Egypt or Babylon. The only reason why that land was important was because the Lord was there. So, all these things are vital to the development of the, the, his, the story of the Bible, uh, interpretation of the drum of Scripture, taken up by the other authors and being developed. But here's where I want to go. Uh, not here, not here, here. The need for the son of David, the need of a greater David. As we saw, it seems like that David and Solomon are at least the hope that they will be the seed of Genesis 15. Looks like, David looks like the seed, and then we know that he falls, and then Solomon looks like, and then he falls. Like Adam, David falls, like Adam, Solomon falls. As before, when God places a new Adam on the throne, he sins. David's sin is like Adam's. Like Adam, David has been set upon the throne to rule the land. Like Adam, David's, David sins in relationship with a woman. Though, as, uh, as with Adam, the sin is David's, not the woman's. The sin of Adam was spiritual adultery, while the sin of David is literal adultery. Like Adam, David's sin involves taking of the forbidden fruit. And the same thing we think about Solomon. Just as Solomon had once enjoyed the, the glories of Adam in the Garden of Eden, like, like Adam, he repeats Adam's folly by passively following after the practice of his wives. And just like Adam, we have exile. So it's clear as we come to the end of the life of David and Solomon, it's clear that the covenant promises of that seed of an eternal throne, of eternal kingdom, has not been fulfilled. That's clear. So, Peter Lyhart, he says, any faithful Israelite living during the period of Solomon and David could see that God has not yet fulfilled His promises. David and Solomon are great, but there must be some greater king coming. A king who will sit on David's throne forever, ruling in faithfulness. A king who will truly bring rest to his people. And a king who will build a temple that would never be destroyed. Both in his glory and his failures, Solomon points us to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. But despite all this unfaithfulness of David and Solomon, the Lord remains faithful. And he keeps his faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And we see that by the end of Kings, as you come to the end of the book of Kings, there is this fascinating note. That's the last king, he's in exile, he's under the Babylonian rule, this Davidic king, and you think that's all done, it's all gone, there's no longer a Davidic lineage, and 
this certainly the author of first second Kings tells us that the king of Babylon, Evil Merodach, he released Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is released and he can even eat at the table with the king. So Book of Kings ends with the hope that there is hope. There is hope. And that the Davidic king will rise. And that's exactly what the prophets take and expand. They, all the prophets take upon that, especially think about Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the shoot of Jesse. It's like it's under that root. You know when you remove the nasty, nasty tree, like we have the one in our backyard, we have it removed, but that root keeps spring that nasty thing. That's what's going on. It's under there, but we will sprout one day. That's what we see taking place, and that's what the prophets develop. Uh, the latter prophets, the prophets proclaim that God will keep His promise to redeem, and He will so through a faithful Davidic king. And this king, identified as the servant of Yahweh, a new and everlasting covenant will come with the pouring of the Holy Spirit. God's saving reign among the nations, the forgiveness of sins, and a new creation. The hope of the prophets is found in the new covenant. Established by the new David. That's all we see. Think about Isaiah chapter 9. We always read that on Christmas. For to us what? A child is born. And to us what? A son is given. What son is that? He goes on to say. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it. That's the son of David who will come. And the prophet Isaiah especially, he develops this concept of the new David. The son of David promised to David that he will come and he will restore all things. And you see in Isaiah 11. But I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 55 and we're going to finish it right here. You're coming towards the end of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah has already spoken about the servant of the Lord, who is, the servant of the Lord is the son of David, the son of God. In chapter 53, he tells us that redemption will be accomplished by this servant who will bear the sins of his people, and he will bear the punishment. And then you come to Isaiah 55, we read, starting in verse 1, Come! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. See the play, you have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, listen, that your soul may live. Listen to this. Look at that. And now we make with you an everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant. Here's the ESV. My steadfast, sure love for David. Then he continues. Behold, I made him a witness to the people. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know, you shall run to you. You see Gentiles coming to this Davidic king. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. 
I strongly believe that better translation, the hesed there, you have the word hesed, and it is in the plural, and in the constructive form, the, that's why you have the sure mercies, or the hesed's, the hesed's. And the question is, is the Lord inaugurating this covenant in light of his promise to David because of God's hesed towards David or it's because of David's actions of hesed? And I think that's the, the latter. It's the acts. He's doing acts of hesed, of loving kindness. And through those actions, this David king will establish the new covenant. And that's exactly what he told us in chapter 53. By his actions, his loving actions, he will redeem his people and inaugurate Isaiah. Just repeating. That's what Hebrew does. Hebrew literature is uh, repetition, repetition, repetition. You read the prophet, he's speaking again. That's what David is saying again. Very similar to Isaiah 53. He's just exploring that. So what he's saying is, I will make you an everlasting covenant. A new covenant is going to take place because of this new David. He will perform the acts of Hesed, the covenantal faithfulness that's required to inaugurate the new covenant. And that's why he declares, Come. Once he has done all those acts, and that's what Jesus does, all those acts of Hesed, he established the new covenant. And all the nations are invited to do what? Come, come and eat with me. Come and feast with me. Come and drink with me. Come and sit at his table. That's exactly what David, this David here will perform. That's what Isaiah is promising, and that's what Jesus does. The greatest act of Hesed, or as the sure mercies, the sure mercies of Jesus, the new David, is what? His whole life and death in order to inaugurate the everlasting covenant, the new covenant. And that's what the prophets will take upon and develop, and that's exactly what the New Testament will do. The new David, the son of David, the son of God has come, and he has established, he has inaugurated the new covenant. Therefore, the call is, Jesus has come to you. Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Are you hungry? Come. Are you tired? Come. That's exactly what we see taking place. And that's exactly what we have today. The call is come. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Come. Come to Jesus. Because today is the day that His arms are open. Amen? Because you read Psalm 110 that's talking about this future son of David. The day of His wrath He will smash, He will crush His enemies. And today is the day of mercy, that his arms are open, and he says, stop, stop wasting your strength and your time and your money with worthless things. Are you hungry? Come. And he's longing, longing to be with his people, and feed them, give them to drink of the best. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your plan. Beautiful plan, sovereign plan, glorious plan of redemption. Accomplished through the Son of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ.
It's only through his acts of chesed, his covenantal faithfulness, that the everlasting covenant could be inaugurated and we are welcome to enter into covenant with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we praise you, we thank you, it's all about you. It's all because of you. Enlarge our hearts. Help us to see the beauty of Christ today. In Jesus' name.